Hey, so if you're listening to this, or not listening yet, but if you're listening to me talking, you're about to hear a lecture from Psychology, also Biology, 2606, Introduction to Behavioral Neuroscience for the fall term of 2023. How in the hell is it 2023? That means I'm 58 years old, and I imagine that makes me old. Anyway, I hope you enjoy this, but, uh, you know, if you're one of my students, great. Uh, I'm glad you're doing this, and I do this for you. If you're somebody else listening, I really don't care what you think, but uh, actually, it's pretty great because I'm really good at this. Enjoy. All right, so let's talk, where were we? Let's just go back, I think, yeah, we weren't there yet. Yeah, there's a patch clamp, the thing nobody answered on the test. Uh, that's, a, that's an ion channel, that's a patch clamp, in case you're interested. And to give you an idea about that, remember how small that thing was compared to a human hair. That, that magnification is billions and bil literally billions bigger. Right, so let's get on to talk about what I wanna talk about today. We might get into the next topic as well. Um, right. So, how does sensation and movement work? Well, we have cells, receptors, that are sensitive to certain things. So we have receptors for a lot of different things. Uh, light, those are cones and rods in your eye. Sound, those are little um, cells that, have, that are in your, your cochlear, right? Smell. You have all kinds of smell receptors in your nose. Taste. You have uh, taste buds. Those lumps on your tongue aren't taste buds. Okay. Those lumps on your tongue are there to move food from the front of your mouth down your throat. There's friction, they're like sandwiches. Um, we have basically five kinds of taste buds. Here we go. Salt, sweet, uh, bitter, sour, and umami. You know about umami? Umami is the, uh, maybe I should write that up here. Oops, right here. It's a Japanese word, it means flavor. You're saying we have a flavor. Okay, these buds for flavors? Well, yeah, but it's a very specific flavor. It's the flavor of MSG, monosodium glutamate. And no, you're not allergic to monosodium glutamate. Nobody is. You can't be. Because how would you be allergic to the most common neurotransmitter in your brain, which is glutamate? You know what? MSG is fine. Put it on everything. It's great. I love it. The one thing, when you, whenever you're at a restaurant, you think, oh, there's this food, and it tastes so good. When I make it, it's not as good. What is it missing? MSG, butter, and cream. Yep. <laughs> Wait, aren't some people more sensitive to it than others? Yeah, but the, the thing is, the level that, that it would take, like, people say they're sensitive to things. What are the symptoms from the sensitivity, right? That's the thing. And usually they're just, people certainly think they are. 
focusing too much. And you can do, can you eat too much MSG? Yeah, of course, you can eat too much anything. Uh, the lethal dose for MSG, though, compared to lethal, lethal dose for sodium chloride, which is another salt, uh, it's about 10 times more deadly, so sodium regular table salt. Like, it and you have hands of it at once. Like, it's not like it's something you can do. Because once you've eaten a couple of tablespoons of, say, salt or MSG, don't do that, by the way, it's gross. Not because it'll hurt you, it's just it's gross. Yeah, you'll be so thirsty for like the next oh couple of weeks. So <laughs> you'll just be guzzling water. Um, yeah, the idea that you get lightheaded from MSG—it's just not true. So we have actually, and we actually have receptors for MSG because it's the flavor that's in meat. It's also in mushrooms. By the way, people would say they don't like MSG. You know, it hurts me. Here's some foods it just occurs in: tomatoes, mushrooms, virtually every cheese. Yeah, so you eat MSG all You just don't eat it in the convenient powdered form that I like. All right. Touch, I talked about touch receptors before. Pretty easy to understand how these work, right? Uh, just pressure, one-to-one -one relationship between pressure and the, thing, and the receptor firing. Uh, pain, we have pain receptors. Then they're separate from touch receptors. Oh, there it is. There's so much stuff at this table at the front. I never know what's mine, what's somebody else's. I got my fake Apple Pencil back. It was apparently sitting in this teacup. I didn't put it there, that's the first thing. The second thing is, I'm blind, don't laugh at me. Um, a cold, we have temperature, we have, actually, you might think cold and hot. Yeah, we have two sets of receptors, one for cold, one for heat. Oh, well. You would think there'd be temperature, but that's just not how it works, so then that's fine. So you, you knew all this stuff. Point is here, one sec, John. Uh, this is for sensation. We've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. We have eight kinds of receptors. So remember when you were told there were five senses? Well, you don't have five senses. Because I told, I told you that with taste, we got five different ones. There's 20-odd senses. Don't give me this five thing. Yes, John? So uh, the thing is... So the thing is, do you get um, pain from the uh, muscles? Okay, yeah. How does pain work? We don't know, really. It's, the, the discovery, will, uh, what the hell, I'll jump ahead of that. The discovery of, there, there's actually a neurotransmitter that's devoted only to pain. And it sends pain messages. It's called substance P. It's like, what kind of stupid thing is that? Because when it was first, when people thought, there must be a neurotransmitter, but they didn't know what it was. They hadn't seen it in it before. It was all theoretical. They said, we'll call it substance P. And it was in the literature. And then when it was discovered, they said, well, I guess we'll keep calling it substance P. So that's why it's called that. Yeah. Um, it's damage is what's being detected. And then the information is sent to your brain to get processed. And it goes through part of your spinal column called uh, the pain gate, uh, which is you can think of it like a gate, that's why it's called that, and it stops or, or allows pain messages to go through. So a lot of, um, some pain medications actually work on that, other pain medications work directly on the neurons that, that, that process pain. Okay. But yeah, it can be, but we're, pain's kind of a mystery. You know what else is a real mystery? Itching. No one really knows how itchiness works, which is kind of why, at a neurological level, I know it. I know what being itchy is. All right, how do we move? Um, 
a neuron synapses onto an end plate, that's which uh, we have really big channels here. You'd want really big um, ion channels at the, yeah, where am I? Let's make sure I didn't miss anything here. I don't think so. Yeah, okay, good. So you have really big ion channels, uh, which you probably want because you want things to happen where you want movement at the last sort of the last part of uh, we call it the last mile problem if you're wiring the uh, At the very end, the thing that's going to the, the, the neurons are going to make you move. You want really quick reactions, as quick as you can. See the ion channels here are quite large. Uh, the neurotransmitter that's being used here is acetylcholine. Okay. So acetylcholine antagonists, when we talk about agonist antagonists, can actually cause paralysis because, and think about it as well, if the acetylcholine can't do anything to your muscle, then you're going to be paralyzed. So for example, curare, which is a, a poison that's made from some tree. Uh, <laughs> I don't care. Trees suck. Plants are stupid. I hate them. Remember, I always remember to tell Dr. Chef, I think he's basically just a gardener. Um, it's all in fun. I only make fun of people I like. Now you sort of think, who does he, who does he not make fun of? Those are people he doesn't like? Don't do that. Don't do that. Anyway, yeah, so uh, curare, what it does is it stops neurotransmission. And in fact, it was used in the 1920s. Uh, John Watson did an experiment where he said, there's this whole school of thought in psychology called behaviorism. It's a little, and there's, there's radical behaviorism, which is like getting radical, usually kind of stupid. But what happens is that they thought that all thought was micro speech, that actually you're, you're talking to yourself, you're thinking. People look on John's face and say that's crazy because it's crazy. There's a reason that's the right look. So what happened was this guy Watson he gets shot gets a shot at curare and he lies there and he's paralyzed but he's completely you know aware of what's of his surroundings and then he can still think and he said well this wasn't enough. No uh, thinking isn't just you moving your mouth just really quietly. That's not thinking. Did I hit it there? I did. Uh, really nasty nerve agents like sarin work like this as well. So, uh, which is something that, of course, is a weapon of mass destruction and has not been used in warfare happily because uh, it's been used in terrorist attacks, <laughs> but it's not been used in, by state actors. Now, I want to read this because I want to get this right. So, I'm actually going to read from my notes here. So during neurotransmission, acetylcholine is released um, from the presynaptic neuron into the synaptic cleft and binds to the acetylcholine receptor, just like you'd expect, right? Um, and then, let's see. So what happens next is there's the release of an enzyme called the acetylcholine esterase. It's just acetylcholine and then the word esterase after it. Um, where am I here? What is acetylcholine esterase? Yes. Uh, yeah, and what, what that does is it uh, hydrolyzes the acetylcholine, 
and then the choline, it takes the acetyl group off, the choline goes back up into the original neuron and gets turned back into acetylcholine. Now, if that can't happen, if we block acetylcholine esterase, all it's going to do is you're going to get, you're going to run out of acetylcholine because you can't make more very quickly, right? Also, your muscles will stay rigid because they haven't been. So what happens is when people get things like nerve gas, like sarin, um, it's, first of all, an extremely unpleasant way to die, but also, uh, not there's a great way, but that's more, not one of the good ones, that's what I'm saying. Uh, so you basically get paralyzed and everything just stops. Yeah, James. Would, would, uh, if you could give somebody who's uh, an older person with yeah, that's that. The difference is that that's just a mechanical thing about the bones, right? So it wouldn't no, it wouldn't make a difference. Yeah. You give them a lot of muscle spasms. <laughs> I mean, if and if that's your jam, go ahead. Uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> okay. So how are we going to measure some of this activity? Uh, electroencephalogram is the oldest type of brain imaging, an EEG. Uh, this one I think probably is 128 channels. Let me just. Yeah, that's probably right. Maybe 256, but I think it's 128. And they're basically just electrodes that go on your head and they detect brain waves. So you can detect abnormalities. That's about it. Uh, there's a couple other fun, fun things you can do. You can present a stimulus and uh, see what the response is. That kind of Okay. You could make one of these, you could buy parts and make one of these. Like it's not, it would, you wouldn't know what you're doing. And you, but you, what I'm saying is you could measure something. And you wouldn't know what you're making. That is, you look like you want to ask a question. Okay. Well, when, when it comes to you, let me know. CAT scans, computerized axial tomography. Basically, these are x-rays. But they're x-rays from the brains. And then the, the computer builds a model of what the brain looks like. And of course, the CAT scan doesn't have to be in your brain. It can be on, you can have a CT scan of your knee or whatever, right? You can see here, though, that's a, that's a God, it's all distorted on that. Let's, let's, let's look at this one. It doesn't weird me out as much. Look at the detail here. It's beautiful, isn't it? Like, that's an actual living person's brain in cross-section. Like, it's just gorgeous. Look at, look at the ventricle here. There's the corpus callosum. There's the pons. There's the olfactory bulb, cerebellum. Like, it's beautiful, except that it looks like it's shrunk a little bit. That scans. Positron emission tomography. Whoops. Let's get something stupid. Let's put that back on. Here we go. So radioactive glucose is given to the patient or the subject if it's an experiment, whatever. They drink the glucose. And remember, so it's sugar water. In essence, what they're, they get Kool-Aid. But it's got a radioactive tracer in it. It's not, a, it, it's not like the level of... It's like Chernobyl here. You're going to get this. This is a small amounts of radiation, just like you would get for an X-ray. Like when you go to the dentist, they give you an X-ray. Right. 
or something else. I mean, I usually get x-rays at the dentist and I get x-rays in my leg when I broke a fever's back. But anyway, what happens here is you drink this stuff and remember that your brain uses glucose. So when it takes up glucose, it takes up radiation because it's, 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 it's radioactive glucose. So I can now watch activity of your brain. I can watch it in real time. You lie down in this tube and what happens is the radiation So during decay of that radiation, one of the things that gets released is what's called a positron. A positron is a positive electron. And you're going, what? Yeah, it's antimatter, which is very Star Trek and awesome. Uh, and then, which immediately gets annihilated by an electron, because there's just electrons everywhere. And these little, very, very little explosions, that's a are shown on this. And the reason this is pointing here, as you can see, is this looks like everything should be symmetrical and it's not here. So maybe you've got a problem. You got a question, John? So um, on the uh, PET scan topic, yeah. does it, it looks like, does it look like a thermal image? When, just like when it's exactly what it looks like. a thermal optic. No, that's exactly what it looks like, yes. And in fact, that's what's going on here. Um, except it's not a, a level of heat that you could, like you can't just put your hand on someone's head. Ooh, you're thinking really hard. But, um, but that is, in essence, what's going on here. So the red parts, the red parts here means just more activation. The colder the color, the less activation. Now that is, the computer's doing that. It's actually not measuring temperature. It's measuring where the positrons were annihilated by electrons. But the nice thing here is you can actually see function. Uh, uh, what you can see thinking while it happens. Now, when you get to a magnetic resonance imager, MRI, or the fMRI, functional magnetic resonance imager, um, this is a cool one because it isn't invasive. You can have as many MRIs, like if you've had enough x-rays, they don't give you any more x-rays that year, right? Because it's like, you know, you've had your dose of radiation. And that's when you say, I live in Sault Ste. Marie, um, where we just get cancer from the air. Anyway. Anyway, uh, it's a whole rant, and so I don't have to do it. Uh, so much of that, I can't think when. But yeah, so what's happening here is you get very little, you get no radiation here, but like when you go to the dentist to get uh, an x-ray, they might say something like, have you had any x-rays this year? How many do you have? Uh, maybe we'll skip the x-ray for now. Um, but MRIs are great because they, they aren't radioactive. They're just really powerful magnets. This is why if you ever had an MRI, the first thing they say to you is, they'll say things like, you have a, you know, any metal plates or pins or anything, because the magnet will rip those things out of your body. It's very powerful. That's why you don't wear jewelry. You take off your glasses, you remove your earrings. You don't have change in your pocket. Um, oh yeah, please. So, do you have like, uh, metal in their body? Yeah, they don't go, they don't get MRIs. Because there's other ways to do imaging. You can do a CAT scan. MRIs are great because, and look at the detail here again, it's so weird because it's all, but you can actually watch thinking, you can watch activation happen almost real time. 
There's usually about a five second lag. Maybe more, maybe five seconds. There's three so long. Yeah, sure. So um, from what Kendra explained, does the uh, MRI scan then the uh, brain or something like that? Well, yeah, it scans the brain. Look, that's, that's a brain. Yeah. But yeah, so that's exactly what it's saying. But an MRI can scan anything, too. So it doesn't have to scan a brain. It can scan your knee, right? It yeah. can scan, it's just another medical imaging technique. Those of us who don't really care hopes too much about curing people uh, just find these really interesting ways of measuring stuff. So it right? is we can use it in research, et cetera, yeah? So it is literally, literally an x-ray. You can think of it that way, but it's no. No, literally an x-ray is, is CAT scan. Yeah. PET scans are not x-rays. Uh, MRIs are not x-rays. MRIs are done with extremely powerful magnets. You're right. And what happens is in, the way it works is inside the neuron, um, let's not worry about how it works. It gets complicated and there's no real, who cares? The magnetic field changes the way certain things look. And the nice thing is you can actually see stuff happen in real time. Uh, there was a paper that came out in the uh, journal Neuron uh, in 2010 that showed people literally measuring uh, the occipital lobe and being able to read the computer, could read what they were seeing, but the computer didn't know what the stimulus was. So the subject is in an MRI looking at and it was a simple stimulus, by the way. It was the word neuron, which is awesome. And then what happened is the computer had to figure out what the person was seeing. And they could do that. Uh, we will be able to, in our lifetime, figure out, when I say our, I'm including myself here. So that's, you know, within the next 25 years. Um, we'll be able to tell what people are looking at by putting in their MRI. Uh, you will be able to, at some point, I would imagine, record moving images. Uh, and once you can do that, you can record dreams. Yeah. I don't know what purpose that would serve, but you could do it and it would be cool. And you could post your dreams on YouTube and then immediately the first person would post and would say, fake. And the next person would say something about Obama, even though he hasn't been president like forever. And then there'd be a bunch of racists, some Nazis, and then finally somebody saying, Nah. And that would be the end of it. Because, you know, I've recorded my dream, put it up, I go, mm. Right, what's up? Um, for cat, is there a limited amount of CT scans you can get a year? Yeah, yeah, because they're, 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 they're just kind of x-rays. That's so, And there are lots of x-rays. Yeah. They're not just one. So I was looking for one person. There are lots of x-rays. It's like, why do you think sometimes she was up and looked at the glasses? It's like, well, you don't look at me. Why do you not care about the answer? I <laughs> oh, no, it's you who asked the question. Yeah, so, um, yeah, you, you gotta be, you can't do anything. Now the thing is, a lot of times, I remember when my, my, my dad died of brain tumor in 2008, and I remember I asked the, I, I said to the, 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 the uh, neural oncologist, I said like, he's had a lot of CAT scans and stuff, like, are you worried at all? He said, I'm more worried about the brain cancer, Dave. I said, yeah, me too, cool. Because <laughs> yeah, at some point it's like, eh, this is a calculus we're gonna do here, we can either, work on the brain or go, well, we don't want them to give me extra cancer. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, it's that kind of thing, so. But yeah, you gotta be careful with those things. Yeah, please, go ahead, sorry. I was wondering, is there a reason the cerebellum looks kind of 
squished. Well, here is because this camera's this this screen's stupid. This one here. It's a good question. I don't know the answer to that. I can't remember where I got that. Well, I know exactly where I got it. Google image search, MRI brain. Um, did I read the caption of that? Well, of course not. So no, I don't know. It's a good question. You're right. It does look kind of effed up. Yeah. Oh, you know what you could do? E uh, ERPs. So these are event-related potentials or uh, that's sometimes called that a lot of things actually. Or event, yeah, let's go with that. Uh, there's other terms that are used in This is using microelectrodes on single cells. See, you can see these, this is a, there's a neuron, look. Hey, look, there's another one. See how much branching there is? It's crazy, right? This is a microelectrode touching basically a neuron. Right? So you can see what individual, what, what things are, this is a single cell recording. Yeah, you're obviously not doing this on people. Right? You because I'm not drilling a hole in your head and putting a little microelectrode through it. Besides the microelectrodes, you know, a hundredth the thickness of your hair, I don't think I'd be doing that anyway. Because it's hard. Are these in petri dishes then? Uh, no, these are in animal brains. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. They can also be done in, in petri dishes, sure. But yeah, these, these non-human stuff, typically. There's so much crap in here. What is stuff, eh? Okay. We could look at products of neural folds. Oh, um, just touching the neuron with the, the, the electrode? electrode, is that programmed by a computer? Oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you're not doing that by a Because think about that, like any little movement, we're, we're dealing this, we're dealing micro micrometers here, right? Like micrometers. So, yeah, any little movement, that's all being done by a computer. Yep. Oh, I thought you had your hand up. No, Jane? No? You no. Good? Okay. Right. So we can also look at the, the products of neural firing. Okay? The products of neural firing. So one of the things, because we can't really measure firing necessarily, what if we could measure what happens when someone fires? So we'll look at this. Genes are expressed, and one of them... Uh, a gene gets expressed called zinc. When neurons fire, <coughs> zinc is expressed in, that's, that's in birds, there's other ones that are expressed in other animals, but when you're in oh, birds right So what happens here is you put the animal in a, some kind of situation, present a stimulus to it, and then when that's done, you, you kill it. And you take out its brain and you slice it and you measure how much zinc has been expressed that tells you where firings happened. Mm -hmm. okay. Now this work here is looking at uh, white-throated sparrows and looking at when they're restless. They're, restlessness in birds means something very specific. Migratory restlessness, it means they want to leave. And in fact, Birds will literally spend their time, if they're in the northern hemisphere and they're about to, and it's the fall, they'll spend their time in the southern part of a cage. That's how much they want to leave and fly south for the winter. Uh, one of the things, you might wonder, how in the hell the birds who migrate, how do they, how do they migrate? What's, what kind of thing is that? 
I could just leave, but I, I can look things up on Google Maps. How do they do it? Well, they do it by, by knowing the Earth's magnetic field. When they're restless and their eyes are open, not sleeping, but their eyes are open, you get a lot of early immediate gene expression, you get a lot of zinc expression in a certain part of the brain called cluster N. Can I tell you a story about when they, you know, NW200, you know, the big room in the other building? Well, it's got a clear podium. Yeah, clear, po clear furniture. That's funny for the blind guy. I walked into it one day when they just put it up, and I, there's a, a 10 minute rant somewhere in 2013 on the internet. Because I record these things that aren't open there. I'll be just don't leave. Because I, I hurt myself. Yes, John? So, um, in spite of um, birds migrating, do they have insomnia for some reason? It's <laughs> kind of a neat question. I don't know. I don't know, John. That's a question. Ask, yeah. your, ask your sister. Um, when I say ask your sister, this is her work. So you get more gene expression when you get migratory restlessness and it's at night. Yeah. Um, when they are in the so you put an animal in a situation, yep. the, and then you want to measure the thing. Yep. How quickly after the situation and killing birds does that have to happen? 20 minutes. 20 that's, 20 minutes? 20, that's 20 minutes. Okay. okay. But I may have just made that number. I'm going to find out. <laughs> I have an expert right here. We'll see if we can get a, a, an answer before the end of the class. How long after sacrifice? No, oh, it's called sacrifice. That's it's the sacrifice of the birds. We always say joke when we say to the research class. But I mean, it's they're called how long after sacrifice do you have to measure? Autocorrect zinc in the Zeno, which I don't even know what that is. Yep. Okay. We may find out if she's up yet. Does that have to oxidize? Is that I don't know. You're, you're now getting beyond what I know. So I don't know. But no, um, what you do have to do is um, uh, you use a an anti, it's, there's an antibody that's used. I don't, I don't actually, this is getting way beyond things I know. I know there's an antibody used. So that's, I was about to say some things, but I thought, that's all, I know the word antibody here. That's all I got. But yeah, so what you're, the cool thing that they're doing here is they can actually measure how much firing there is. See, that's, that's, those are all individual neurons that are fired. Um, you could cool part of the brain. What if you took a steel loop and put it in the bird's brain. And then you could cool part of the brain down by cooling down that piece of metal. If you cool it down enough, it's not going to work. But the fire, but the nice thing is it's reversible. You're shutting part of the brain off. So that's from a brown-headed cowbird. You can actually watch this. Now let's just see if this works. I'm going to see if I can make that work. 
so this is actually in the hippocampus of a brown-headed cowbird. And is that? Yeah, it is. You can see it there. This is real time. This is real time. And this actually, John, before you asked about uh, thermal optics, that's literally what is being used here. Yeah. So, so that is what's being used here. So you've got the bird, and you're actually watching to see if this works. And you can see, hippocampus is getting cold. So within eight or 10 seconds, you get the, the hippocampus gets down to about, well, single digit Celsius. It, that's not damaging to it, but it's enough that it stops it from working. So you can turn it on and turn it off. And then you can measure all kinds. The cool thing you can do with all of these things is you can do some kind of measurement. And you can then find out what part of the brain is used here, what part's used there. Now this, again, is only going to be used in non-humans. You wouldn't be doing this to any of you guys. And again, that's also work by Madeline Broadback. That is me, once more, pumping my kids' tires. All right, so to conclude this stuff, neurons communicate electrochemically, and the nice thing is we can measure it. So, and if we can measure it, we can measure something, we can manipulate it, we can find out if we can like measure, do a thing, measure again. Right, you can have people lying in an MRI and you can ask them questions. Right? So you, they're in an MRI and you ask them, you give them a list of words and ask them to recall the words. You can actually see where they're recalling them. You can give people a list of words and give them, maybe, what about, what if we could give people, uh, maybe implant a false memory in people? And then we can have people recall the words and sometimes see if it looks different when they recall a false memory than a real memory. And implanting a false memory is like, that's, it's trivially easy. of a, like a single word, I, I, can, I can do it right now. Don't write these words down, one moment. Don't write these words down, just listen. Haystack, knitting, phonograph, pointy, sharp. And then what you would wanna do is you measure everything, right? So you can see, do they look different? And it turns out when you're looking at memories that are not necessarily real, you actually know they're false, it looks a little bit different. Not so much that we can make a clear determinations all the time. Get a question, John. So what can uh, electrical electrochemical process do? Well, you just heard heard about the last two lectures. I hope you hope you internalize some of it. it yeah. What does it do? It, it it runs your damn brain. And uh, and two, what are lots of ways to measure this? Activity? Well, we just we all, so EEG, MRI, CAT scan, PET scan, elect uh, event related potentials. Yeah. Uh, so all those things we just talked about, the ways to measure it. Yeah. Yeah, so that's why that wraps that up. We can measure false memories? Or we can see that? Well, I don't know. Kind of? Well, maybe, kind of. Yeah, it looks like there's something there. Well, so like, so somebody's, like, like, uh, like you said, you, you recall being in a barn or something, uh, but then, like, somebody, like, uh, uh, one of the other ones. Uh, Zach, don't, you, you might, you might just spoil the demonstration about to do, so I wouldn't say anything else. Okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to say words. Put your hand up if you heard the word when I gave the list of words, okay? Don't try not to be influenced by anybody else. Put your hand up if you hear a word that I said, okay? Sharp. Okay. Light bulb. Okay. 
knitting. Photograph. Screen. Did I say haystack yet? Haystack. Pin. Desk. Needle. No. I didn't say needle. I should have said needle. Needle in a haystack. Knitting needle. Inoculations, you know, and shots are done with needles. Needles are sharp. Needles are pointy. You have you put a phonograph with a bioelectric and you have a needle. I just didn't say needle. So what you do is you do that experiment and you have people recall words and you measure what's happening there. And there's been a little bit of success there. I'm not saying we can, we're anywhere close to saying that's true and that's not true based simply on activation of the brain. But it's cool. It's cool. That's a fun thing to do. You can do that. It works for about 40% of people. And don't feel bad if you thought needles on that list. It should have been on that list. Those are the most highly associated words with the word needle in the English language. It's also the case that People will sometimes argue with you vehemently and they'll get angry with you. No, you said needle! You really didn't. I went and gave a talk once to a bunch of grade eight kids. I don't do that anymore. Do <laughs> I don't do that anymore, and there's a lot of reasons, and one of them is people between the ages of 12 and 17 are just garbage people. But they do become great, by the way, right? But it's amazing how people between the ages of 12 and 17 know everything yet they know literally nothing. Anyway, and I thought they'd go with my own kids. So, thing is, I did this, the teacher got mad at me. She's like, no, you said, yes, I didn't say needle, I read this list. Uh, also, it happened to me, I was at a conference, and the guy who developed this paradigm was giving a talk, and he said, I'm now going to plant a false, you hadn't told us he's going to do it, I'm going to plant a false memory in you. And there's uh, 200 people in the room, and we all have PhDs in psychology, and we're all like, bullshit, no, you won't. Like 40% of us will get needle. Yep. Are you asking if we hear what you No, no, if you heard the word. If, if I said those words. Yeah. Oh, okay. Sorry. Either way. Wait, hopefully, no matter what, doesn't matter. Nothing matters. Absolutely nothing matters in the world. I've become a nihilist right now. All right. So let's do the next thing, because we can. Uh, synapses and neurotransmitters. That looks interesting. Hey, there it is right there. You may have trouble right now getting stuff from my website because it's been inadvertently, stupidly miscategorized. Did you notice this? As porn. <laughs> yeah, so if you go to DaveBroadbeck.com, it might still say, this is porn. Did not yeah, see a science. <laughs> <laughs> I, have, I have submitted a series of IT tickets. It will be fixed. I was, I was able to go on it. You were? Oh, good. I didn't get so I shouldn't have mentioned anything then. I have never had a problem. No, that happened this morning. I was setting up the blog post, you know, for the podcast. And it's like, this site is blocked. I went, oh, then I looked and said, pornography. It's like, oh, come on. And then I thought, oh, my God, what happened to my website? Did someone go, you know? So I'm trying to get off our Wi-Fi at the university. I'm going through my phone. No, it's just stupid. Okay. All right. Let's talk a bit about, yeah, we got time. Talk about synapses, not transmitters. Um, so this is one of my favorite, cool, extremely clever experiments. 
um, that's really consequential, but it's also just a cool experiment. So a guy named Otto von Levy did an experiment in 1921, so 102 years ago. He stimulated the vagus nerve of a, of a frog. That nerve uh, stops your heart. It's the same as you, by the way. And your heart doesn't always have to go. It also has to, you know, contract, expand, contract, you know, so, sure. This slows the heart down. Of course it does. Of course it does. He washed the heart with a solution. Now, this is a live frog, and it's cut open on a board, and it's pinned like this. I'm not saying you should be pleased with that happening with an animal until we have 102 years ago. Get over yourselves. So he washed the heart with a solution. And by the way, that solution, great Kool-Aid. I'm kidding, obviously. It's saline. Um, so he collected the saline and he poured it on another heart. So he's got another frog pinned down on a, on a, on a lab bench and he pours this solution, I mean, that's a pouring solution, with, onto the other frog's heart and it's slow. Woohoo! That's really cool. Like that should already tell you, and, and well, that should tell you right away, right? And Levy thought this, I have collected a chemical that slows down hearts. Yeah, right? That's, that's, that's what he did. Um, it's kind of exciting and cool. So he, got, he had to name it. So he did like any German does. He just takes a couple of words and puts them together in one word. Do you know German? Does anybody here speak German? Anybody? Any German? Some, well, a few little German. German's a funny language. I mean, it's great. We speak a Germanic language. English is a Germanic language. Uh, German has this tendency to just make compound words, which works for them. But German has very few words, it seems to me. Because they need a new word, they just combine a couple of words. Oh, Weigerstoff. But that's great. I wish we did that more in English. Instead of having to come up with the word acetylcholine, which is what he yeah. he called it Weigerstoff. Yeah, this is the Vega stuff, you know. <laughs> but we today we call it acetylcholine because that's the chemical. Do you know what the, you know what the, you know German you know a German stuff? I think I think I do war movies sometimes. I'm really into that stuff, of course, because I'm a middle-aged man. Um, tanks, think of German tanks. You know what the German word is for like a battle tank? It's a Panzerkampfwagen, which means armored battle car. You know what the name is for a glove? They don't have the word glove. Handschuh. It's a handschuh. Some guy named Dieter, a couple of hundred years ago, went, yeah, I could put some shoes in my hand and put a, uh, call it a handschuh. And someone else said, why do you not call that a glove? Right, what's going on? What am I doing? Who am I? Where am I? You're an actor. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't need it. No, no heckling. Um, so that's a seal calling. Then he did it again, he stimulated heart, collected the solution, poured it on another one, and it worked, and that we called that uh, epinephrine. Or as, of course, von Levy called it, solutions of steep and up and see heart and see, I think was the official name he used, but I can't obviously. So that's epinephrine, or adrenaline, we use that term sometimes too. Usually adrenaline, when it's in the blood, in the, in the circulatory system, usually epinephrine in the brain, but they are interchangeable. 
You'll hear adrenaline a lot more in the states. You'll hear epinephrine a lot more in the continent. But both of them are white, so nothing's wrong. Right. So he found a couple of neurotransmitters. He, he discovered the first two neurotransmitters. They, like, that's pretty cool. So we've talked about this a lot already, but the synapse is the gap between an axon and a dendrite. It's small. <laughs> 20 to 40 nanometers is small. Pretty small. So neurotransmitters, those are just chemical messengers, are released across that gap. And, uh, and then, if not all the neurotransmitter is used, in other words, if it doesn't bind to a binding site on the next neuron, it gets taken back up into the original neuron. That's called reuptake. You may have heard of reuptake before, because you've probably heard of antidepressants like selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. The name literally tells you how the drug works. I like things where the name actually tells you what they do rather than some of the other names we've come up with over the years. Did James, you got a question? Yeah, did they, did, um... Okay. If it comes to you, let me know. So, okay. This is where it's gonna get, it gets a little more, more, more complicated now. You always know it's more complicated. I have an answer, I think, from Madeline Broadbeck. I think we have an answer to how quickly you have to I freeze the brains, they can stay in the freezer a while. I waited maybe eight months before I started processing them for zinc. So, as long as they're frozen. There's your answer. I should totally FaceTime her in right now and not let her know that we're in class. But that would be really, really mean, and she'd never speak to me again. So I'm not, <laughs> not going to do that to my own kid. Uh, right. So let's talk a bit about this. How does this work? There are three pools of neurotransmitter. So in a, a neuron, there are three different what are called pools of neurotransmitters. They're just bun they're molecules, right? And by pool, I don't mean like a pool, like a swimming pool. I mean like a bunch of a selection of. Just like you know how in, in hockey or in soccer or whatever, in tournaments they'll have pool A and pool B and pool C. It's the same idea here. There's different divisions. Okay? When we say pools. I'm not saying there's actually like glistening pools of acetylcholine. It's not like that. Now, there are three pools that ready releasable. The ready releasable neurotransmitters are we probably have a guess for these. These are these are right at the axon terminal. They're in vesicles. Vesicles are little tiny round things, little bubbles, bubbles of, of basically the same stuff as cell membrane, and they hold about between 120 and 140 neurotransmitter molecules each. But some are right at the very tip of the, of, of the axon, okay? And they're ready to go. Some are recycling. Recycling means they're just, they're recycling. They're cycling around the axon. And some are in reserve. They're more up by the uh, solar. 
and so on. Okay. So what happens when a vesicle it binds to the cell membrane at the end of an axon? So this little bubble, like, what am I doing with my fingers? I can just draw a picture. I mean, I've got a picture there, but let's do this one. So let's do, there's an axon there. So there's some vesicles here. And they've got little red dots here to the neurotransmitter molecules. Okay? So they're just floating around there. And what happens is, there's going to be any uh, neurotransmitter released. Uh, let's see, is it possible? Let's we'll get even closer here. So just this one here, like that. This, that's, that's useless. I don't know what I just did there. That's the worst drawing anybody's ever done. I don't know what it was. I just looked like there's a U going through it. That's helping literally nobody. So what happens is the, one of these vesicles fuses, fusion, fusion, right? Joins up with the cell membrane. So if it's this one right here, this guy here, if we look at a different thing, so we still have these other guys here, but this guy, this one here is fused. And you can see now it's going to be able to release its neurotransmitters into the synapse. That might help a little bit. I've got a better picture coming up that someone else drew. Okay. You can either get full collapse fusion, that's when the, 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 the vesicle basically completely collapses. So it goes like that and, and opens right up and lets all the cell transmitted. It fully collapses. And then it bakes itself up again. And goes the other thing you can get is what's called kiss and run. This doesn't have full collapse. What happens is the vesicle just kisses the membrane and a very small hole, it doesn't completely collapse, a little hole is made, a little what's called a fusion pore, that fusion pore, and the neurotransmitter is released. This is all done using a protein called snare. Snare stands for uh, SNAP-soluble NSF attachment protein receptor. The nice thing about it is it's, the reason it's called SNARE, so often you see this. It's one of those backronyms, like they come up with the name, they go, what is that gonna stand for? So it looks like a little snare, like a little, like a, like a lasso. And it actually grabs onto the vesicle, opens up the, Cell membrane. Uh, we've got a little picture of it in a second. There you go. So, 
this is the snare protein. What it's doing is it's ripping the, it rips it open, draws the neurotransmitter, which is pretty cool. Hey, here's a better picture. So here's a vesicle, here's a fusion pore. At the very end, we call it, we talk about a snare rosette. That's the little hole it's gonna go through. This porosome is only about 10 nanometers across. Really small. And you gotta also remember, this stuff's happening, but it's happening at a tremendously quick speed. Right? Like, the, the release of neurotransmitters just happens, bang, 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 bang. It's happening really quickly. This, this mechanism is similar in any, any cell that secretes anything. It's not, this isn't just uh, unique to a neuron. But the coolest application is to me anyways in neurons. Here's, I like this picture here. This gives you an idea. So we get a fusion pore form and we get release. We either get full fusion like I was talking about where it opens it up or we get kiss and run fusion. Lung fusion has been, no one's actually ever seen in real time, I don't think, full collapse fusion. Um, this happens incredibly quickly. But the way you do this is you measure the perimeter of the cell, and then you find out when it fires, the perimeter of the cell gets a little bit bigger, and then it goes back to its original size. The only so what's happening is it's opening up, that becomes part of the cell membrane, the cell gets a bigger perimeter, then goes back to being normal cells. Pretty neat, right? All right. is formed, we get neurotransmitter released. Yeah. That's what it does. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense? So, yeah, it does. Okay, good. Anything else? Please. Um, does the ventricle have just one type of neurotransmitter yes. or is it all the kinds? Most neurons have one type of neurotransmitter, though they don't always. One of the biggest things I can, mistakes I can ever make in a course like this is say, yes, always, yes, always, no, never, because it's almost always. Yep. The fusion rule that snare, oh, sorry. So snare rips the membrane apart and yep. letting it out. Yep. Does it also help to sort of force the vesicle in there? Or is it just sort of creating a hole that any of them can go through? I don't know if that's the, you know, uh, the, the first thing you said is what it does. It, it's, okay. it's only for, yeah, it's always going yep. All right, uh, if you haven't got your test, come get it. Um, and that's, uh, that's a wrap. Thanks everybody.
So thanks for listening uh, to the lecture. I hope you got something out of it, as I noted in the intro. Um, these are copyrighted, uh, share like 3.0 Canada, uh, some rights reserved, so you can redistribute this all you want, but if you redistribute it, uh, you can't make any money off of it. Uh, and also, uh, if you mash it up, I get to mash up your stuff. Uh, most of the mu the vast majority of the music I found was on an old website called GarageBand, which doesn't exist anymore, uh, and then it was called Podsafe Music. So this is all music that I have, uh, that it's perfectly reasonable to. Uh, put on these podcasts. Uh, if you are interested, I can oftentimes find the, the name of the band. The name of the band will be listed in the post. And uh, go look these bands up and, and buy their music. Because um, if they're cool enough to let me use this, you should be cool enough to pay 99 cents or whatever to buy one of their songs. Uh, on that note, I will see you next time.